Would you pray with me? God, there is just no way that we can understand, no way that we can appreciate the way that you love us. That your grace covers our sin, that your love reached out to us when we were absolutely unlovable and unworthy. And so we just stand here today in awe of that love and grateful. God, give us a glimpse. Help us to know that it's not about anything that we've done or could do. Help us to understand how wide, how high, how long, how deep your love is for us today. And to live out of the secure place of that love this week. God, we love you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Jesus is radically different than anyone else who has ever lived. Now, that's a great statement to make, but it's often hard for us to realize because our images, our icons, our pictures that we have created about Jesus, they just don't do him justice. They paint him as this timid, this peaceful, this placid, this boring (laughs) Jesus. <laughs> and yet the Jesus we find in the Gospels was anything but timid and boring. His searing honesty made him at times seem almost tactless in settings. He was notoriously difficult to predict, difficult to pin down, and at times, honestly, he was just difficult to understand as people listened. The people who felt most comfortable around Jesus, well, they were the type that nobody else felt comfortable around. Jesus commended a groveling tax collector. And at the same time, that was over a religious leader of his day. The very first person that Jesus revealed himself to as the Messiah was an outcast Samaritan woman who had a history of five failed marriages. With his dying breath, Jesus pardoned a thief who had absolutely zero opportunity for spiritual growth. Many people followed Jesus because they had urgent needs in their life that he alone could meet. Everywhere he went, people were brought to Jesus who were sick or demon-possessed. They came for healing. Others came to Jesus because of the sensationalism. They wanted to see the miracles. They wanted to feel the thrill of being in the audience when those signs and miracles were performed. And then there were others who I think just hung around because they loved to see the tension between Jesus and the religious leaders of the day. Then there were others who followed Jesus, like the disciples, because they genuinely believed that he was the Messiah. He was the Son of God sent to this world. They wanted to walk with him. They wanted to follow him closely and learn from him. I'll say it again. Jesus is radically unlike anyone who ever lived. His message, and even at times, his personality was polarizing. His message was clear. His message was simple. And it called for a choice. Either follow me or walk away. But there was seldom middle ground 
in his teaching. Clearly, there is something about Jesus that causes people to turn their life upside down, to walk away from jobs, to walk away from family, and even to risk their very life in order to follow him. And that's somebody that's had moonshine. Um, Just kidding. We don't serve that in the cafe. Yet. Thank you. (laughs) Never church as usual. Hey, I have the privilege this morning of kicking off a series uh, that all the teaching pastors are going to participate in over the next seven weeks called Why I Follow Jesus. And we're going to take a look in the series at some of the interactions that Jesus had with people, some of the stories from the life of Jesus that hopefully will answer that question that's pivotal in their lives and in our life. Why do we follow him? And this morning we're going to look at a conversation Jesus had with one individual who was very significant in Jewish history. And the man's name is Nicodemus. We only learn about Nicodemus in John's Gospel. He's only mentioned three times. And here's the first time that Nicodemus is mentioned. It's in John chapter 3 where John says, Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council, and he came to Jesus at night. We learn a lot in just a few short words. First, he's a Pharisee. Now today we hear that word, and we immediately get this image of this hypocritical, puffed-up, narrow-minded, spiritual loser. Okay, that's kind of the image that you have if you've heard any messages at all where we talk about Pharisees. But in Jesus' day, to be called a Pharisee was to wear a badge of honor. These men were looked up to spiritually. They were the giants of their day. So that was because they had taken a solemn oath that they would devote every minute of their lives to obeying the Ten Commandments as a way of pleasing God. They were masters of the biblical text. They had studied the Old Testament. They knew vast amounts of the Old Testament by memory. And the rest of it, they knew very, very well. And they embraced the spiritual disciplines like prayer and worship and Bible study. They embraced them in a way that no one else in culture did. Yes, the Pharisees could be harsh. They could be arrogant. But most of their contemporaries overlooked that because these were individuals who were willing to pay a spiritual price that nobody else was willing to pay. In a nation of millions of Jews, there were only 6,000 Pharisees. It was a very elite group. Yet Nicodemus, we find, was was part of an elite group even within the Pharisees. He was a part of the Jewish ruling council called the Sanhedrin, which was only 70 of those 6,000 Pharisees. They formed, if you will, the Supreme Court of Israel. They tried civil and religious cases. They made the laws for the nation of Israel. And it didn't matter where you lived in the world, they had authority over you if you were a Jew. We get one more clue about Nicodemus later on in verse 10 of John 3 when Jesus says to him, you are also Israel's teacher. That's not a small detail. Most likely Jesus is singling out Nicodemus as the theological expert of the Sanhedrin. 
when they had a disagreement, when they had an issue with a passage in the Old Testament, they would turn to Nicodemus and go, what does this mean? And he would have the answer. He was their go-to guy for theological questions. Now, outside of the Bible, history records that there was also a great teacher and a miracle worker who was a Pharisee who was much loved and respected by the people. He lived in this same time period that we're talking about, and his name was also Nicodemus. There's no way to corroborate that these were the same people, this Nicodemus that was a teacher and the Nicodemus that came to Jesus, but it's also not disputed. So there's a good likelihood that this was one and the same person. So you get the picture? This isn't some random dude coming up to Jesus on the river walk in Elgin and just having a conversation. He has power. He has prestige. He has popularity. He has wealth. It's all at risk in the questions that he's pondering about Jesus. He's looking for a safe place to ask those questions, and so he comes to Jesus at night. He's curious. He's also fearful. And I love that Jesus agrees to meet with him, to talk with him. Because it's tough to ask those kinds of questions, isn't it? I mean, when you've got a deep, meaningful question, it can be tough to just get it out there. Anybody out there afraid of looking stupid or feeling embarrassed with your question? Just raise your hand. Yeah, the rest of you are liars. All of us are afraid of that. We just don't want to ask those questions. We don't like feeling stupid. We don't like feeling embarrassed with our questions, especially when we have a lot at stake in the question we're going to ask. I tried to think of how to compare Nicodemus's questions he's about to ask to something that would happen today. So it, it, here's the best I could come up with. It would be like a Fox News reporter. Hang with me. Okay. A Fox News reporter going to the 2016 Democratic National Convention. Got the tension? Okay. Looking for sound bites. And getting so caught up in what's going on at the convention that they leave committed to campaigning for Hillary in 2016. That's what's at risk here for Nicodemus. So here's the conversation that happens. Nicodemus leads off with an amazing statement. He says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you're doing if God was not with him. We? Rabbi, we know? So evidently at this point, he's not the only one in the Sanhedrin who's got some questions about Jesus. Now, he's not all in. He calls Jesus rabbi. He says, you know, you're not a prophet from God. We're not giving you that status. We're definitely not saying you're the Messiah, come to save the world. But we'll call you rabbi, a great teacher. We're willing to admit that God's with you because of the signs you do. You're a rabbi. You're my peer, is what he's saying. You're a good teacher. And there's a lot of people in the world today who give Jesus that same status. You're just a good teacher. I'll give you that. But in the next phrase, Jesus cuts right through the small talk and gets to the heart of the matter with Nicodemus. He says, 
Very truly, I tell you, nobody can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. It's the first time that phrase is used in Scripture. Nicodemus says, well, how can somebody be born again when they're old? Surely they can't go a second time into their mother's womb and be born. Nicodemus came with a boatload of questions to Jesus. He's trying to get, Jesus is trying to get to the real issue and skirt all the other questions. And he basically says to Nicodemus, in your desire as a Pharisee to be deeply devoted to God, you guys have all made following God confusing. That's behind that statement. We'll unpack that over the next few minutes about being born again. At the core of the Jewish faith was the Ten Commandments, which are given in rather general terms. Honor your father and mother, worship the true God, refrain from lying, and various other sins and commands that are given there. In order to be more specific about what those meant, the Pharisees worked to spell out the commandments and apply them to very specific life situations. All that work was eventually compiled into a very thick set of documents called the Mishnah. Today you can buy those on Amazon. It's 844 pages long. It's detailed. And it was very confusing. How confusing? Well, let's just look at one of the Ten Commandments. In Exodus 20, verse 8, the Bible says, Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. That was one of the Ten Commandments. The Mishnah went into great detail about that and God's subsequent command of you do that by not working on the Sabbath. The Mishnah went into 156 pages explaining how to honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Let's get real specific. If you were a farmer, you used rope, and you tied knots in the rope on a routine basis, working with animals and working with tools. And so if you're a farmer, that's work. So on the Sabbath day, you can't tie a knot in a rope. That would be work. But there were exceptions. If you can tie that knot with one hand, that's not work. <laughs> oh, it gets better. Two hands is work, one hand is not. But there are things that are essential in life. So we'll give you a pass on those things. Tying a knot is essential for those things. Here's one that, one that I found was really funny. Essential is the key. So, for example, a woman is permitted to tie a knot so that she can wear a girdle. Because we all know a woman without a girdle is going to ruin your Sabbath. Right? So, the more this went, the more confusing it got for people, and the more they just looked for loopholes. So, what happens if you forget to tie a knot in the rope on the bucket to draw water out of your well on the Sabbath for your family. That's a legitimate problem, right? Can't do it. Tying that knot means work. Here's the loophole. You can tie a knot in a girdle, right? So tie the girdle to the bucket. Then tie the girdle to the rope. Can't tie the rope to the girdle. That would actually be work. Tie the girdle to the rope, and then you can lower it down in and get your water. 
So you have to pray for several things to be able to do that on the Sabbath. You have to pray that your wife has a strong girdle. (laughs) And you have to pray that she has a flexible attitude. And you also have to pray that the girdle's clean because you really don't want to drink that water. (laughs) Okay? It's just silly, isn't it? That's one of the rules in the 156 pages. It comes from a good motivation. You know, you want to observe the law and please God, but it just got messed up and confusing. That's the kind of faith that Nicodemus is trying to live out to please God. Rule-based, rigid, confusing. There's 844 pages of that stuff in the Mishnah. Some of you are unkindled right now trying to order that and read it. I know you are. And we haven't progressed much in the last 2,000 years. We're still capable of taking the simple and making it confusing, aren't we? Uh, We do it in all areas of life. I ran across this week uh, a list of laws that we have in Illinois and Chicago that illustrate our potential to do this. Most of them are still in place. Some of them, uh, the aldermen in Chicago set about removing starting in the 70s just to clean up some of this mess, but most of these are still in place. But look at these. Here's, I'll give you seven of them. There were a bunch. Uh, first, it's illegal to fish in your pajamas in the city of Chicago, <laughs> which I think makes perfect sense because I've never found many fish in my pajamas. Um, some of you will get that later. Uh, second, You have to call the Chicago Police Department if you plan on entering the city limits in an automobile. Okay? That's a really old law. Uh, Third, you may not take your poodle to the opera. Uh, It makes perfect sense, right? Third, it is legal. It is legal for anyone under the age of 17 to protest naked in front of City Hall. It's a really good thing I'm not under 17 because I'd protest that poodle thing right now. (laughs) I'm just telling you. In Evanston, Evanston, this is still on the books, you cannot change your clothes in your car, even with the curtains drawn, unless your car is on fire. (laughs) Those people in Evanston are so sensible. Last two. Uh, It's illegal to give a dog whiskey in the state of Illinois. That law should be amended to say it's illegal to give a dog good whiskey, right? And the last one, it is against the law to make faces at dogs. Uh, that makes perfect sense and because dogs are very sensitive, and it's actually why they need the whiskey to get over their sensitivity. You know, silly stuff. There's just crazy laws on the books. We make things complicated. I'd love to read the cases that led up to those laws and why we wrote them. But we still do it, and we do it in churches. We just do. We make up silly rules and regulations that aren't in the Bible and have nothing to do with loving God and loving others. And we try really hard at Westridge here not to do that and just keep it simple. The Pharisees had made following God confusing with stuff like that. Pharisees would eventually add 7,000 pages of detail in the Mishnah and the Talmud to help you follow those simple Ten Commandments. It was way beyond confusing. It was to the point of being ridiculous. There was no way to keep up. There was no way to keep track. So I don't find it 
surprising at all that Nicodemus was drawn to the simplicity of Jesus' message and to a conversation late at night. And Jesus gives Nicodemus two images from the Old Testament that he should be very familiar with and says to him, Nicodemus, it's really much simpler than you've made it out to be. First, he points him to Ezekiel 36 and a beautiful passage that says, Truly I tell you, Jesus says, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and of the Spirit. Nicodemus should have been really familiar with this passage as Israel's teacher. Jesus was trying to lean into his strength. Here's what that passage in Ezekiel says. God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I'll cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I'll remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and move you to be careful to keep my laws. 600 years before Jesus walked the earth, God made it really clear, really simple, and yet profound. God wants to cleanse us from all our impurities. He wants to make us clean. He wants to remove all the guilt, all the shame, all the stain of sin from our lives. That's what grace is all about. That simple but profound act of making me clean is what makes my relationship with God possible. And he wants to change my heart. I can't do it on my own. I've tried. So by his power, through the Holy Spirit living in me, God's going to give me a new heart. He's going to guide my life. He's going to help me make right choices in my life. He's going to rid me of all the distractions in my life that pull me away from loving and serving him. So Jesus gives him that simple little phrase that points him to Ezekiel. And I believe that Nicodemus is beginning to understand the fog is lifting. And in that moment, the pieces start to come together and the pieces of his life start to fall apart. Because he blurts out, how can this be? He expresses his inner conflict. Are you telling me my whole life's work, the basis on which I've been trying to gain God's favor, it's, it's all wrong? Pretty much. He's so close to seeing it, so close to coming to faith, that Jesus helps him with one more image, and this one's out of Numbers 21. It's a story about when the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness after their captivity in Egypt. And as they wandered, they got a little mouthy towards Moses and towards God. They started complaining, we don't like this camping out in the desert. We don't like the food. There's no water to drink. And so as they complained, God disciplined them. He removed his protection and he sent poisonous snakes into the camp. Just a side note here. In scripture and in life, when snakes show up, it's just not a good thing. And amazingly, as the people were bitten, they died and the whole nation had a change of heart. The people asked Moses to plead with God to forgive them, to save them. And God said to Moses, I want you to make a bronze snake, put it up on a pole, tell the people 
that when they're bitten, if they'll look at that snake on the pole as an act of faith in me, they'll be healed and they'll live. Knowing that Nicodemus would know the story, Jesus says to him, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. To look on that snake, to be healed, to be saved, there's just one requirement. You had to admit you had a problem. And that wasn't too tough to do. The snake bite numbers were really high, and the mortality rate was even higher. It was pretty obvious when you had been bitten. I don't think there were a whole lot of people in the camp who were just blowing off their swollen arm, their swollen leg. It's not a big deal. I think it's a spider bite. I'll let it go a few days and just see how it goes. No. When they got bit, I don't think pride got in the way. They looked on the snake, confessed their faith, they were healed. What's interesting is that in 30 years of ministry, I've seen a whole lot of people let pride get in their way as they consider the claims of Jesus. They struggle at a specific point of admitting their need for a Savior. They somehow cling to the idea that there's something good about them that God ought to accept. There's this feeling that if they do more good than bad, God ought to just accept them and and let them get into heaven. That's the path that Nicodemus was on. And it's a complicated path where you measure your behavior to determine if you've done enough good. And what that asks for at the end of life is that God gives justice. Or at the very least, he would give mercy. It leaves no room at all for grace. What Jesus offers to us is way better. And it's way simpler grace. So let me ask you two questions this morning. Do you have any problems in your life? I follow Jesus because he frees me from living the way that Nicodemus lived. He frees me from establishing rigid rules and performance guidelines and measurements in my life to try to earn God's forgiveness or earn his love. (laughs) If you don't know me, I've got this type A++++ personality, a bit of OCD, a bit of controlling mixed in there, an addiction-prone personality. And so I could be like Nicodemus in a heartbeat. And just so you know, if I chose to go that path, I'd be way better at it than any of you. But the grace that Jesus offers to me means I don't have to get it right all the time. 
I don't have to get it all under control. I don't have to have all the answers. I don't have to have a perfect life. I don't have to have perfect kids. I don't have to have a perfect wife. I don't have to be your perfect pastor. And when I screw up, and I do on a regular basis, the grace that Jesus offers wipes the slate clean. I'm forgiven. And he removes the guilt and the shame. Second question, how's your heart? There's some hard-hearted men in my family. Racist, abusive, insensitive, harsh, angry, bitter, alcoholic. Yeah, you'd meet them. You'd think they were decent guys. Think you want to hang out with them until you get to know them, until you cross them. Then you want to hold them at arm's length or a little further. Stone cold hearts, like Ezekiel talked about. I follow Jesus because he's giving me a new heart. He saved me from myself and the deeply embedded patterns that I have in my life. He's taught me a new way to live. He's taken my wounded past and he's taught me how to open up, how to trust, how to give and receive love in the relationships in my life. And in the process of doing that, what I've learned is that I'm a broken individual and I live in a broken world with a lot of other broken people. I follow Jesus because we are all in need of a Savior. A Savior who died on a cross so that we can have a relationship with God if we will believe in Jesus. And in love, He takes our shame, He takes our guilt, and He sets us free. He takes everything bad about us And he gives us everything good about himself. It's just as simple as that.